National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cyber Security Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. And good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, October 25th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We're broadcasting live from the Cybersecurity Summit here at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. This is the 13th Annual Cybersecurity Summit, and National Security This Week is fortunate enough to be sponsored by this incredible gathering of cyber community professionals. As part of our live show here at the Cybersecurity Summit in Minnesota, we'll learn a bit about what happens at this three-day annual event and about the topics being discussed at this year's summit. Then we'll dive into a number of topics linked to cyber operations and security around the world, all of which are important issues connected to American national security interests. With us to discuss our cyber topics today are a couple of different guests, and we'll begin with Eileen Manning, who has been a leader in pulling this summit together each year for 13 years in a row. Then we'll turn to Sean Costigan and, and Sylvain LeBlanc, who are, will discuss more on cybersecurity operations. So first part of our interview, Eileen Manning, who is CEO of the Event Group Incorporated and a founding partner and executive producer of the Cybersecurity Summit. Welcome back to National Security This Week. You joined us a little over a year ago in our studios down in Northfield, Minnesota, to talk about the lead-up to last year's Cybersecurity Summit. And I'd like to ask you a few questions about this year's summit and the summit as a whole. First, what was the catalyst for starting the Cybersecurity Summit here in Minnesota, and why why did it have such strong legs that has continued for 13 years in a row? Well, thanks, John, for having me. And thank you for this amazing program to uh, keep security issues out in the forefront. Um, the Cybersecurity Summit <clears throat> was started 13 years ago because when different groups realized that cybersecurity threats were going to be so interwoven into our everyday lives, touching not just business, but you personally. Um, they, just, they looked around the country and they said, okay, where do we need to make sure that we've got things shored up? And I was approached by the Technological Leadership Institute at the University of Minnesota and some other people. And, and they said, we need to develop a cybersecurity platform here in Minnesota. Why Minnesota? Minnesota is very unique in the fact that we have all 16 critical infrastructure based here. That that doesn't happen around the country. So we have, what does that mean? So when the government and military look at how we're going to defend our country, they break, they've broken it down into 16 different areas of critical infrastructure. So, for instance, we're talking agriculture, feeding the world. So we've got the corporate headquarters of Cargill and General Mills, to name a couple, and water. We've got the corporate headquarters of Ecolab providing water to 155 countries in the world. Um, so that's what I mean by critical infrastructure. And we've got the corporate headquarters for all those right here in Minnesota. So Minnesota needed to have cybersecurity resources here for all these major corporations. Um, and what's unique about this summit, from the beginning we set out and said, okay, we cannot, the, the government and the military cannot defend our infrastructure when it's owned privately by industry. So how do we come together and collaborate, share best practices? And so from the very beginning, we were very strategic in pulling together the government and military and the academics along with industry. 
So every year we put together a think tank. It has grown to 50 leaders mm. crossing all critical infrastructure and all those different, uh, you know, the military, the government, and academics. <clears throat> so they come together once a month and they spend an hour downloading what what cyber threats they're seeing coming at them, what's keeping them up at night, what topics they'd want to hear, what they need to know, know more about, not just from the United States perspective, but from a global perspective, because this is not a U.S. issue. This is a world issue. So, so each year we move forward with downloading all these concerns, and then from that and what we're seeing coming at us, we develop a theme. And okay. that's how the 13th annual theme came about, Resilience Unlocked. All right. So uh, wh- what is the Cybersecurity Summit designed to do specifically from year to year to year? I mean, is it sort of an ongoing learning process or uh, do, the, do the professionals around the community kind of know what's coming at them and, they, and you choose a theme and you're going to focus on a specific theme in any given year? So it's a combination of things, what we're trying to accomplish here. So bringing people together across all those different silos is December 16 critical infrastructure. So, for instance, a few years back, we had Mayo Clinic um, talking in, in the healthcare track about solutions they were using. And we had people that are here from the energy sector, and they're in on that sec- session, and they're like, oh, my God, that's a solution that we that's so transferable we could use that solution mm-hmm. so it's it's collaboration across all those different silos getting okay. everybody together um it's building your network so that when these things happen you know people have a, a connection a call so you don't want to wait until something happens to develop a relationship with the <laughs> right, fbi for right, instance right, you right. know you want to have those uh, uh contacts and and building this community and this collaboration um so when when stuff happens, these companies can reach out to each other and and share information with each other before you know before it happens to another company. So there's there's a lot of it's just building community, yeah. and it's providing a platform to develop our cybersecurity professionals. It's developing it's providing a platform to share knowledge, share information, and build collaboration and build community. Yeah, th- this show we you know we talk about a lot about statecraft, the tools of national power, things like that. One of the things that's become pretty obvious over the course of the last three years as we've discussed all these different topics is that uh, the United States benefits strongly from building trust over time with our partners, you know, allies and friends around the world, because you cannot surge trust in a crisis. That has to be established well out of time. So it sounds to me like the Cybersecurity Summit is serving a critical role in helping to build that trust across a wide range of uh, different cyber professional groups. Uh, This event is not, I mean, is it solely for cybersecurity professionals or, or do you welcome a much larger audience, uh, people with a professional, personal interest in the cyber arena, for instance, or corporate security people, maybe uh, C-suite office holders? What, I mean, who's the audience here at the, at the summit? We really, I would say probably 90% of the audience are, uh, are cybersecurity leaders mm-hmm. and practitioners. And then we have a smaller part of the audience that are our future cyber warriors. So we bring in students like, for instance, this morning we brought in 50 students and uh, because we have to talk to students, we have to get cybersecurity education has to start. It should be kindergarten through PhD. That's what they're, they they just, they passed that law a year ago or or so in in North Dakota. And I, it's really critical that we're talking cybersecurity from the 
very beginning. So we have to expose our youth that this is a career you can get involved in. This is a really important career. We, when we started the summit 13 years ago, we projected that there was going to be 250,000 uh, jobs we were going to be short of within just a couple of years. Today, it's 4 million jobs that we're short. So we have to start exposing our students into cybersecurity professionals. And, you know, yesterday we did a phenomenal session um, because we also talk about diversity in cybersecurity and we have a whole women's uh, track. And we, we did this session, See Her, Be Her. Mm. But that's, that's transferable. It's not just about a, a female. It's, it's about um, the kids today... Cybersecurity is a new career in the last like fifteen years. It, it is so. So they don't, there's not a lot of parents out there that you, you know. It's like your parents a doctor, so you grew up thinking and seeing somebody being a doctor and think about that as a career consideration. Well, how how do we duplicate that when this is such a new career? Yeah. So we have to get the students exposed, the youth exposed to cybersecurity careers. They you know there's so many different ways to be involved in cybersecurity as a career. But let me tell you, you talk about job security, this is going to be a career <laughs> path you're going to yeah. want to go. And it's a well-paid career path too. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, September apparently was a record month globally for ransomware attacks. So clearly, uh, this this field, cybersecurity, is not, is one that's uh, going to be around for a long away. time. Uh, so you mentioned the theme for this year's summit is what? Resilience unlocked. All right. It does each year have a different theme. Is that kind of how it works? Yes. Yeah. From the um, from the. Um, there's every every single year we come up with a totally different theme. The this theme, however, I think is really truly my favorite. Um, the reason it's my favorite is I just think that in order to sustain the incredible number of t- attacks that our cyber warriors are every single day facing. It's millions, right? It's millions. And, and it's like, you know, it, I was standing on the beach last year thinking about the theme. And, I, and the waves kept crashing in. And the <laughs> yeah. sound, just, it just came back, it came at you. And <clears throat> wave after wave after wave. And it actually gets exhausting. Yeah. And you can't turn down the sound. We can't turn down the attacks. So how do we help arm these cybersecurity professionals with ways to become more resilient? So Evan Francine, the CEO of, of FR Secure, uh, is on stage right now, and he's talking about situational awareness and how different tools throughout this entire year we have woven through every single presentation, different tools, different tips on how you can build your resilience. So that we're better prepared because it's not if it's going to happen, it's when it's going to (laughs) happen. That's right. So each year you bring in some, uh, some top build speakers to talk on specific situations Uh, on the show last year, when we broadcast live from, from here, we had uh, Beth Sanner, who was one of the deputy directors of national intelligence uh, join us for the full hour. Uh, Who are some of the top build uh, speakers that you have at this year's uh, summit? We do have, um, like I said, right now, Evan Francine is on. Uh, Ira Winkler's up next, and he is author on many cybersecurity books, and, and uh, people really love Ira and, and follow him. Um, <clears throat> we have uh, CISA, again, is sending somebody to uh, 
to speak this afternoon on ready, set, you know, get ready, uh, be set and ready for cybersecurity. We, yesterday we had a packed house with um, Jake Iverson of the FBI. I mean, talking about the the things that the Bureau are seeing and things that you should be concerned about. Uh, We have over 140 presenters during the course of this three days. Wow. So there's, I I mean, there's so many amazing speakers. Um, we have Jennifer Drow this this afternoon and, and this morning, later this morning, and and she um, isn't as much a cyber background, but she's going to talk about how we start thinking about our cyber community, how we build these cyber communities. Um, so so just it's just a wide variety of speakers. We have all these different tracks as well. So the first day, which was yesterday. Um, it breaks down into a variety of different tracks. And then day two and day three, which is what we're on now, is a general session where everybody's together in the same room hearing okay. the common themes. But on the first day, we have a track just for the public sector, so okay. for government agencies. Because if you are the city of Blaine or city of Minnetonka and you have to you have to convince your city council um, – uh, about your cybersecurity budget, you know, their needs are so totally different than somebody from General Mills or Optum right. 3M. Right. So, so we have a whole day dedicated to people working in government and what the resources and tools that are out there for them on a national level, on a local level. So um, John Israel, our state CISO, and, and um, MinIT have been a, a really big supporter and driver of this, of this summit. Um, we have a whole healthcare medical device track. You know, we have over 700 healthcare medical device companies based here in Minnesota. I did not know that. It's, it's incredible. <laughs> and as a result of that, it, the, the, you know, the defense mechanisms for medical devices, securing medical devices and securing our ha- hospitals and, you know, avoiding ransomware attacks in the hospitals, what happens? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's deadly. Yeah. So we have a whole day dedicated to healthcare medical device. And I am so proud of our community. You get, you get these incredible companies together that, you know, like medical device companies like Medtronic and Boston Scientific that are in some ways competitors. But when it comes to cybersecurity, they're all coming together and they're sharing best practices. They're sharing what they're seeing. So that's one of the things that's so important about why come to this. Um, We have a whole day on um, industrial controls. We have a whole day dedicated to diversity in cybersecurity. We have, um, then we also offer 15 different technical sessions where it really gets into the deep dive, the technical things. Um, so that's like the first day. And then, and then last night we had an international dinner. Um, and then today and tomorrow it's a lot of general sessions. And tonight, What's really going to be fun is we're getting together as a community and we are celebrating some leaders in cybersecurity. All the people that are here are, are leaders and worth being, you know, we need to celebrate the whole, the whole community. Um, but every year we select a, about a, a nine, 10 people that we really want to highlight. And what makes this so fun and so special, and there are still tickets available for this for this evening, but we bring in, um, 
this fabulous rock star, Dominic Allen. And he toured with the band Foreigner. He, you know, headlined in Vegas for years. He's just, he's an amazing rock star. And we have been fortunate enough to have him come in. He has custom written a song, oh. Let's Get Cyber Secure. <laughs> I won't sing it, please. But believe me, <laughs> they told me to lip sync when we did the recording. <laughs> so anyway, but we have... The, we have these really amazing CISOs and members of the cyber community that are amazing musicians and can sing. And so we got together in August on a boat on the Mississippi River, and we did our first recording of this. <laughs> and then tonight we're going to preview Let's Get Cyber Secure, and we're going to have you know a full-blown full production. It's going to be a lot of fun. So. So following you, we will have uh, uh, Dr. Sean Costigan and, and Dr. Savannah LeBlanc uh, talking uh, cyber uh, issues around the world. I don't know if they're here yet. Uh, do you mind sticking with me for a little while? Oh, no, okay. I love it. Love so it, love so it. you and I are both uh, graduates of the FBI Citizens Academy. Yes. And uh, I, I know that uh, post 9-11, the FBI really focused heavily on, on counterterrorism mm -hmm. and, and more prevention of terrorist attacks rather than, uh, you know, investigating after they happen, because that's the number one goal to stop those attacks. Cyber security, cyber penetrations of the government and critical infrastructure and whatnot across the country has been inching its way up that's probably competing right now directly with uh, with counterterrorism as a, as a critical mission for the FBI. You mentioned FBI's involvement uh, here. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that public-private partnerships that have been established in the country to, uh, from a cybersecurity perspective. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, when we started, when we started the summit, um, the first year I invited the FBI to be part of part of the discussion. I had some um, people that were supposed to be up on in, on the panel, and we had talked about some of the topics we were going to discuss. And then the panel started, and and once it started. Um, uh, because I had the FBI there, none of the panelists answered the questions like we had, <laughs> you know, we talked about. And I'm like, after the panel, I said, what is going on, folks? You know, why aren't, why aren't you sharing the information? They're like, because the FBI is in the room. We don't want them in our business. I'm like, oh, my God, do we have a bigger issue here? So I set out to really build this relationship. And, you know, so this year, so instead we have uh, the Bureau involved in the helping and planning of this. And, and um, we, InfraGuard is this corporate liaison program. And it's been really, really great because, like we said earlier, you don't want to wait till you have a problem to right. have to build a relationship. So this way... Um, um, we're, we're, we're building those, forging those relationships early on. And so the Bureau is there to be your partner, to help you. They're not, they're not interested in coming in if you have a breach and, and getting into your systems. That's not what's happening at all. Yeah. If you have a breach, they're coming in and they're trying to shore you up and helping you. And they're often calling you before you even know you have a breach because they, they've seen something. And so, you know, I get calls all the time for, and saying, hey, I need a contact at this company because uh. they know you. So, so reach out to them and build a connection for us. So it's, they're a really important partner, and they're really working hard um, over there to, to help help us. I appreciate that. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us. Eileen Manning, founding partner and executive producer of the annual Cybersecurity Summit here in Minnesota. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I know you're busy. You have an entire summit to run, so I'll let you go and we'll shift over to our other guests. And thanks again for your wonderful radio program. Okay. Thanks, and you're Eileen. in good hands now. <laughs>
All right, folks, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. We're broadcasting live from the Cybersecurity Summit here in Bloomington, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. We're discussing cyber operations, cybersecurity, and related topics while we're here at the Cybersecurity Summit. And we're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Okay, so now we're going to shift to our other two guests for this morning's show. Dr. Sean Costigan is the Director of Cyber Policy at Red SIFT, overseeing and advising on the company's global cybersecurity policies and strategies. As an advisor to Red SIFT, C-suite and senior leadership executives on cybersecurity matters, he provides continuous insights into the evolving threat landscape and in recommending appropriate action. He's an expert in emerging cybersecurity challenges as well, and Dr. Costigan is a leader for NATO DEEP's cybersecurity capacity-building efforts, including on Ukraine. He's also co-author of the forthcoming uh, PFPC. What does that stand for? Partnership for Peace Consortium. Okay, just making, yeah. making sure. Yeah. Uh, NATO Hybrid Threats and Warfare Curriculum, and a senior advisor for the Emerging Security Challenges Working Group of the Partnership for Peace Consortium. Sean is a professor at the George C. Marshall European Center for Security Studies, where he educates on the nexus of cybersecurity and hybrid threats. Uh, Sean is a graduate in the history of science from Harvard University and earned his doctorate in cybersecurity from the University of Portsmouth in the UK. We're also joined this morning by Dr. Savin LeBlanc. Did I say that correctly? That was close enough. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Savin LeBlanc is a professor in computer engineering at the Royal Military College of Canada, RMC, where he is also serving as chair for cybersecurity and primary investigator of the Computer Security Laboratory. Dr. LeBlanc's research interests are in computer security and computer network operations, with major efforts in the cybersecurity of vehicular systems, network counter-surveillance and deception operations, vulnerability and security assessments, and cyber education. Dr. LeBlanc's major industrial collaborations are with the Canadian Department of National Defense's Director of Cyber Operations Force Development, with whom he works on cyber policy conceptual development and advises on human resource aspects of the cyber force. As a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, he served with Special Service Force, the Canadian Airborne Battle Group, and the Canadian Forces Parachute Demonstration Team. So we have that in common. I'm also airborne qualified. He commanded a rapid deployment squadron focused on strategic communications. So, Dr. Sean Costigan, welcome back to the show. Thank you were you here with much, me a while Sean. back. And Dr. Savane LeBlanc, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you very much. Real pleasure to be here. Thanks, John. So how's the summit going for the two of you? Pretty, uh, a pretty amazing start, I'd say. Yeah. It is. The, uh, the, the audience is quite amazing. To see the breadth and depth of knowledge of the participants and of the speakers has been uh, very refreshing. It's been a, a bit of a trip for me to get here, and it's been more than worthwhile. So very, we very interesting. said yesterday that there were torrential rain, rain outside, and uh, we were drinking from the fire hose inside. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. one the other. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, I want to make sure I take full advantage of you uh, having you on the show this morning. As I mentioned in my introduction, Sean, you are supporting some very important NATO cybersecurity efforts. And so in the work you do uh, at the Royal Military College clearly supports both Canadian and NATO security efforts. Uh, before I ask you about those things, let's see if we can get a sense from you about the lessons learned from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how cyber is playing out in that conflict. What, what can you tell us? Yeah, I, I think uh, there's so many different angles. Thanks, John, for the opportunity to talk about it. The, uh, the Ukraine lessons learned uh, with regard to the cyber war against Ukraine, I think they're very fascinating uh, pieces that I'd like to pick up. First, uh, when uh, we think about lessons learned, 
and unpacking that. And uh, Sylvain and I had a discussion about that. And Sly, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll call you Sly here. In this Absolutely. Show. Thank All you. Right, That'll so, be easier uh, for me too. <laughs> so Sly and I were talking about this is, you know, there's always, there's the perpetual question of uh, lessons learned for whom, right? And, and by whom and who's teaching and uh, all these things. So, but if we take a step back and say, you know, uh, one of the things we've seen with regard to Ukraine is they've been particularly rich and capable cyber defenders. And part of that is because I, I think my, my own assessment of this, and I'm speaking for myself, Sean Costigan, not the Department of Defense, not Red Sift or right. anyone else or NATO at this point, I would say, you know, we, we know that they've been good at protecting their crown jewels. They've, they recognize that they've been under cyber attack for a decade. Plus, it's not just been the last hot in the last year of the hot war. And that recognition has uh, brought them to become some of the best cyber defenders that I can see in the world right now. So the, um, Crown Jewels thing that I just want to, I want to read a quote, uh, yeah. which uh, from McGeorge Bundy, which, uh, you know, who, who you may know, yep. and I know, you know, uh, is, uh, you know, he was the uh, national security advisor for Kennedy and Johnson. Uh, and, and he said that if we guard our toothbrushes and diamonds with equal zeal, we'll lose fewer toothbrushes and more diamonds. Now that is a quote about crown, <laughs> about crown jewels, if there ever was one, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and that's the thing that the Ukrainians have recognized is that they, they looked around and said, what do we need to prioritize? Since 2014, they learned. And they have continually learned and gotten good at it. So I'd start there. Uh, Sly, you may. Yeah, Yeah, I'll, I'll also mention that, uh, as Sean has mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm also not uh, a spokesperson for the Canadian government or the Department of National Defense. Sure. But I am a faculty member at our military university with full academic freedom. And that's the, the capacity in which I'm speaking to you today. And I, I can't speak to the specifics of Canada's involvement with Ukrainian forces, uh, other than to say that it is, we have indeed been assisting with some of their cyber efforts. Uh, your audience may not be aware, but Canada has been participating in what we call uh, Operation Unifier, uh, which is an operation in the training, it's a training assistance mission to Ukraine, and we've been with them since 2015. Oh. Uh, and at their request earlier this year, the operation has been extended to March of 2026. Uh, so, uh, pardon me, 2025, I okay. misspoke. Um, but we've, we've helped train some 38,000 of their forces uh, in the meantime. What, what I'd say is, and I love the lessons learned that, that Sean is bringing out, but I think that there's a couple of distinctions that are not often made between cyber operations and other kinds of operations that it might be worth spending a, a minute or two talking about. Uh, and the, the first one is, to my mind, uh, is that, it, you know, in a kinetic operation, it is possible to decide not to get involved in a particular campaign or in a particular operation, right? You can just decide, I, I'm not going to go there. But in the cyber environment, you're, you're involved whether you want to That's or right. not. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a good point. Because if you're, not, if you're not going to be there actively participating either something offensive or in an active defensive operation, you, the adversary can decide that you're going to be involved in their cyber operations, um, and one of the things that is key to me is that even if the effects are sometimes difficult to attribute or difficult to, uh, to highlight, the asymmetry is very real. Uh, in the cyber environment, you can have somebody or a small force with a bit of technology and some access to networks that are going to have effects. Mm -hmm. And those effects, when the effects are big, uh, we think of the 2014 shutdown of the Ukrainian power plant, and power grid And the spillover. Right and the spillover from that. When, yeah. those, when those effects are large, it's easy to focus on them. And it's easy to say, okay, 
Now I recognize this cyber operation that's happened. Mm. I recognize its effect. But in the gamut of military operation, those in the know know that it's no one particular arm that is all that has the the monopoly on the effects. It's yeah. an all arms effort. It's a joint effort, and cyber operations are there in support of kinetic operations or supported by kinetic operations. Yeah. Uh, and the the last bit that I'll caution when we talk about lessons learned is the. The tendency of senior military leaders and senior defense leaders to make analogies yeah. about the cyber <laughs> domain, and those analogies, they break so they can quickly. Fall flat. You start scratching right. at the surface a little bit, and they fall completely flat. So yeah. to me, you know, when I heard those lessons, Sean, I think that that's just a, it's important to put them into context as to thinking that the cyber environment is there, as, the cyber domain is there as one of the other domains of warfare. Right. It's got some particularities, but it is integrated with the other domains as well. If, if I can just pick up a couple yeah, here, John. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so we think about a couple of different things, and, and Sly and I were talking about this. There's a general question about whether you can frame it as wither cyber war that many people have asked, like, why hasn't there been this cyber war? Why don't we see the effects of it? And uh, this is, I think, broadly a mistaken question and needs to be reframed, and I'll tell you why. In, uh, in a second. So first, just, uh, you know, we, we mentioned some of the lessons learned from uh, Ukraine, and I just want to pick up a couple of them. So flattening hierarchies, one of the thing that, things that they've done very well uh, is uh, they learned some of the lessons from 9-11, some of the lessons that we've learned, and they've taken uh, them to practical extent and, and taken advantage of them, reducing right. silos. When you say flatten hierarchy... So reducing silos, flattening hierarchies and organizations uh, so that people can share uh, more readily some of the lessons that they're learning internally. Okay. Okay, so that they, they're not all siloed, stovepiped information yeah. any longer. So that's one of the one Or of you, the bits, you so. don't have that where with a, a flatter hierarchy, there's not so much of a need to keep traveling up that hierarchy until you find a common point between, you know, two, two endpoints that need information yeah. in a highly structured hierarchical organization you have to keep flowing up until you reach a common point between those two styles or those two stove pipes Precisely. when you flatten you're able to have much more more collaborations between elements that are at the same level and if you do need to go up you don't have to go up as many levels in the hierarchy to find that common point is, is it also delegating authority down to smaller operational units yeah. to take action immediately I, th I think that's fair and then there's also you know standing up of, of complete new ministries so if, if you take for example in ukraine there's a, a ministry for digital transformation or a, a new entity right new young vibrant entity that's thinking through digital transformation mm. in a way that we don't we don't have in other countries and so, uh, again, it's all about prioritizing. So let's pick this wither cyber war for a second. So uh, my, my perspective on this is make no mistake that Russia and Sly and I were talking about this is uh, pursuing an active, coordinated, sophisticated cyber campaign against Ukraine, right? And uh, wither cyber war causes other problems of underestimation, right? If we imagine that we in the West broadly don't see effects, and that's a mistake, but uh, let me just, let me say that again. So that's a mistake. Then we risk underestimating the Russians as well. And, the, and uh, that's, yeah. that's a problem. Russia is uh, really talented in this space and they are very capable and they've shown themselves to be capable. Uh, and that is, uh, that's something that we need to really consider. So there's, a, there, there's been a persistent problem, I think, in security studies largely that, uh, that cyber was treated as some sort of uh, geek ghetto, as I've called it in the past, you know, ones and zero space where nobody thought about it. But the, make no doubt, from my perspective, these worlds have merged. The domains are together right in yeah. a way that uh, we we need to simply recognize and that um 
that is uh, that's the broadside that I wanted to give to the question of wither cyber war, John. And that, that actually goes uh, right in line with a couple of articles that I that I printed off just to have at my fingertips here. One talks about the importance of uh, a military's ability to almost write algorithms at the edge of the battle space in the modern uh, conflict because it's so uh, things change so rapidly. And, th- and this is a comment coming from the U.S. Army's 18th Airborne Corps. Uh, out of the U.S. Army's uh, first uh, Special F- uh, Operations Command, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, Lieutenant General Jonathan Braga, talked about the fact that uh, the most important lessons that are being learned from Ukraine, Ukraine right now are in the information operations sphere. So you, you guys are, like, right on the money here. Well, and I, I'd argue as well that, you know, seeing quotes like this from senior military commanders um, points to the fact that I think that there's been an evolution uh, in in your military and our military, that initially when the, the, there were discussions of this technical domain that is now called the cyber domain, uh, there was a tendency, if you pardon the colloquialism, to say, oh, that's all sick stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. This yeah. is all with the communicators. This yeah. is all, I was a signals officer, so, <laughs> you know, this is all the, the, the beanie heads, the guys with the pocket protectors and the tape on their glasses. Uh, that's their problem. And what we're, what we thankfully realize now is that no cyber operations are operations yeah so they have to be coordinated it's a joint force effort uh, and it it cannot just be relegated to the technical folks you need the technical folks but it can't just be relegated to them it has to be integrated in the rest of operations so when you're talking about you know algorithms at the forward edge of the battle area uh it it's going to be hard to find a couple of contractors that are going to do that for you. Right. So this that's, is this is right. one that's one of my hobby horses uh, is to say that. So what that means is that you're going to have to grow your own. Yeah, uh, you're going to have to have uniform folks, you know, that are able to chuck themselves out of an airplane or that are able to pack a rucksack and at the same time can get some digital dirt under their fingernails to to get the things done where it needs to be done. And that's that's one of the things you see with Ukraine too is that they're actually you know, there are you know forward operators who are cyber experts who are working with every everyone else who are working with you know people on the kinetic end of the spectrum. So right there. So uh, let me pick a controversial issue very briefly because it ties into something that Sly just mentioned which is this volunteer IT army. Mm. Right? So you could argue that it's a natural extension of civil defense and I think that's that's perfectly reasonable. So say again, a natural extension of civil defense. If you don't have the talent and you can't grow it because you've suffered brain drain and you're suffering hot war and you're, you know, have all the different challenges that you have, then uh, you might want to take advantage of a volunteer IT army. Now that's, that's what we've seen happen. So we have this large hacktivist force forces on both sides, really the Russians also have hacktivist forces that are working in this space, but there's a, a, a problem that from my perspective, I think we've seen in other other forms, so analogous problems, a foreign fighter's problem, you could call it. What happens when the war ends? It will end, right? Wars do end. Uh, it may take a while. Uh, it causes a lot of suffering, but wars do end. Then we have a foreign fighter's problem. You've spun up all of these people who know something now about how to do cyber attacks. <laughs> yeah. And you can't spin them down. You, they're, 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 these are cannot distributed. Put, you cannot put the toothpaste back in you the tube. You cannot yeah. put it the is, toothpaste yeah. back in the tube, yeah. right? And so that's that's an issue. And I know that, uh, Ukrainians are thinking about it quite seriously. Uh, what 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 do you do about that? You've you've deputized them in effect, and and now what do you do? 
Yeah, that, that's, so. a, that's a great point. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. And we're broadcasting live from the 13th Annual Cybersecurity Summit in Bloomington, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests in this segment are Dr. Sean Costigan and Dr. Sylvain LeBlanc, and we're discussing cyber operations, cybersecurity, and the, and the Cybersecurity Summit. So a couple of things I'd like to touch on, gentlemen, very quickly. I, I did some research for this. The Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, their website. I also took a look at uh, uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies, and both of them said, you know, they, they brought a couple, two different uh, lessons that were being learned from, from, the, from the war, and you just talked about the, uh, the civilian volunteer IT army. Uh, one is the defense of democracy, as in small-D democracy, fighting against disinformation, misinformation, other forms of propaganda. Uh, another was just the, the aspect of the electromagnetic spectrum as a whole, uh, radios, radars, remotely controlled, uh, you know, UA AVs and things like that, all being impacted by the world of cyber operations. Uh, would you would you guys be willing to com- comment a little bit on those two aspects of this, the small d democracy, defending democracy as a whole, and then the broader electromagnetic spectrum? Yeah, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll start touching on, bring us up to the issue of misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. Uh, and there is absolutely no doubt uh, in my mind that the, the cyber realm can help propagate information. And you need a lot of information to be able to uh, to spread democracy. So I, I fully accept the premise that it can be helpful. But the problem that we have is one of, of sifting. So the cost of sharing information, valid information, misinformation, and disinformation is near zero in the cyber realm. Right. So back in, you know, back in the day when the three of us were much younger people, uh, yeah, you got spam mail, but it costs somebody a stamp to be able to send this to you. Now the cost is very, very little, if any at all. So that means that what we end up with is that we end up with a lot of information that is being shared, some of which is valuable, some of which is just wrong, that's just misinformation, and some is actively wrong, targeting you at disinformation. Uh, and we know that our adversaries are very, very good at this. Yeah. Uh, your audience may not know, but we had a fairly significant diplomatic incident in Canada a few weeks back yeah. where the Speaker of our House of Commons, we're, on a, uh, we're in a parliamentary system, but the Speaker of our House in Co- of Commons recognized in the House uh, a former Ukrainian fighter who was, uh, you know, fighting the Russians during World War II, not stopping to think that who was it that was fighting the Russians in World War II, and it was found that this honored guest uh, had ties to some very nefarious elements of the German military during the Second World War. Yeah. Uh, speaker ended up resigning, and within minutes of those comments being made, uh, we could see disinformation based on this, purporting Canada as supporters of the Nazis that was coming out from some of our adversaries. So we know, and we know that the Russians have had misinformation and disinformation as part of their operations, information operations doctrine for decades. Yeah. So it's going to be out there. And I think that what we, what we, we have a need to educate our population, and Sean and I have had many a discussion on, on such education, and he's... He and another colleague of ours have changed my mind on some of those things. Uh, we have a need to 
help educate the population in recognizing that misinformation and that disinformation the same way that we educate our children's you know not to walk on a dark street at night or if the stove it, is hot or, or that the stove is hot that's <laughs> right. it, absolutely right yeah. so we have that we have yeah. that need to try to educate them but that's not where it stops we cannot put all of the burden on the population to recognize that disinformation the you know the technocrats like me have got to continue working at making it more difficult to spread that message but in you know to sum up yes it is disinformation this that is available through the cyber domain is helpful for the spread of democracy, but it's also helping spread a lot of other information that is That's difficult right. to disambiguate. Yeah. Yeah. And one, one of the things we, we think about uh, at Red Sift as well, and let me uh, just make mention of this, is artificial intelligence, the future. If, if uh, you know, as Sly mentions, the cost is approaching zero for disinformation and the production of disinformation, uh, we get to a point perhaps in the not too distant future, maybe just around the corner, where artificial intelligence makes it much more, even cheaper still, right? more readily accessible, more readily readable. And more potent, it, it, and too, more potent, right? So it, make, it right? makes more artificial intelligence will make it more less specific, expensive to target. Absolutely. More specific. Yeah. And all those things come together in a way that uh, that really should give us some pause. However, right, the, the future waits for no one, and artificial intelligence is here. It's already it's been here for quite some time. We've just had uh, our our moment, our awakening moment with regard to generative AI, and I think that's given us a great deal of um, awareness in a way that we didn't have uh, until relatively recently. And and that's a good moment for us because we have this moment for us to think about where regulators, where policymakers, where companies, where uh, technologists and scientists are coming together and saying we really should be paying attention to this because there, there's a, a, a not-too-distant future where it's going to be much harder. Now, flip side of that, and I know we've given a lot to you, John, but is uh, there's a dependence on companies that I'd like to just pick about pick at as well with regard to Ukraine, and so uh, in particular, so dependent on, on dependence on corporations should give us all. It's another controversial issue. Mm-hmm. Right? Where where how do you prosecute wars right, in the future, or how do you defend yourself right, if all if critical infrastructure in the, is in the hands almost exclusively of of corporations and how do you defend yourself in that space is challenging. Yeah. So a uh, couple of different thoughts there. So the artificial intelligence side, I know you've, uh, you've been thinking about it too. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Let, let me extrapolate a little bit on, on what this might mean in the future. Uh, we know that uh, a lot of the social media companies have targeting algorithms that help, you know, target specific uh, news feeds or uh, posts and things like that to individuals based on what they've clicked on in the past. Mm. Now let's let's add in the power of artificial intelligence to do that for every single individual who's on a social media site and the ability to do that in micro-targeting ways to influence things based on what the AI has been asked to do by whoever's controlling it. Uh, that starts to get very scary for dem- democracy, little d democracy, as we go forward in, in the free world where we want access to free information. And that's not as much of a problem in the societies where the autocracies are taking over and preventing information from being spread to populations. This is a real threat, right? I mean, do is. I have that right? It is, most certainly. Well, it is, but it's a threat that has been with us for quite some time. But it right? gets worse with AI. It, well, it is, but I would argue that we have been subjected to machine learning and to AI in those proprietary algorithms from social media companies from for some time. At at this stage, it seems that the 
the the objective function, if you will, that what those algorithms are trying to encourage is you know keeping eyeballs glued on yeah. the screen so that you can feed them ads that are going to turn into revenue, right? So, but that's the evolution. We've seen those algorithms that are leading us where we are because that's what their objective function is. Uh, with the same technology can be used to, with, to more nefar- even more nefarious purposes. Uh, and that, yeah. I think that that's just a reality where we are right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, particularly, and we haven't talked about it yet, but uh, China, uh, you know, is, is an issue here that we should talk about with regard to uh, their ability to export technology and have that technology used by different governments who, you know, may have... Um, interests that aren't uh, fully democratic. Right. Part, right? And uh, those technologies very often are underwritten by the, the Chinese government or are, are undercut or are cheaper than Western counterparts and don't come embedded with any democratic impulse in them to begin with. So if the, if the objective is to keep control, keep tabs on your people, have uh, and yet leapfrog into the future, and I'm thinking particularly with regard to 5G technology here, then, uh, you know, China has some advantages. It has, uh, it can come with uh, a subsidized package of technology that also gives you control over what your people are able to see, perhaps even at the end of the day think, because we often know, right, what we see is what, what helps us think about what, you know, our futures are going to look like. If, uh, you know, th- that's, that's a real contention, right, yeah. that we have right now. And it's, it's not an easy one because of the soft power approach that we've, we have, Right, that where we are telling people it's beneficial, it's a human right, in fact, uh, to be able to have access to information that affects your life. Right? If, if that, that versus a technological system that intends to create a, and encapsulate people's ability to think about things. Right? And once upon a time, we, we, it was sort of, um, we imagined that the technology was not going to be as capable, uh, perhaps, as it, as it is today. And I, I think reality is that, uh, you know, the Chinese system works. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have students who, um, you know, from China who've, you know, said it's, it works and it largely is not offensive to the, to, to, the, to the Chinese populace at large. So you don't get the pushback that you imagine. It's really from the West that we, we imagine it, we look at it and say this is not good for humanity yeah. And human dignity. Yeah, I think, I think that speaks a lot to uh, kind of cultural identity in many ways, uh, sort of, you know, the, the traditions of a society too, right? Well, it doesn't, but what's the saying, you know, culture eats policy for breakfast. That, right? yeah. So it's <laughs> right. trying, right. trying to project one's culture is, right. not, is not an easy thing not to easy, do. Yeah. It's just a realization right. that we... We must realize that it is the culture is out there, and if those who are subjected to it are not offended by it, we're going to have a hard time changing our mind. That's a good point. That's right. Uh, We have only about 15 minutes left in the show today, so we're going to go into a bit of a lightning round here. Uh, Sean, you you, I mentioned earlier in the show that you're embedded in the NATO cybersecurity policy uh, effort. Uh, How should listeners be thinking about cybersecurity policy now as we see cyber becoming really a force multiplier in kinetic operations and so many other aspects from a NATO perspective, what's happening on cyber policy? And again, not not that I can speak for NATO, but... uh, No no, no classified information, just your your thoughts. Yeah, well, I'm... You know, having worked in cyber for long enough and I've got the gray hairs to show it, I can say, you know, the reality is a while and some hair left, which is impressive, I guess. You know, but, uh, you know, the reality is that I'd say, uh, you know, we should keep cyber front of mind that, that don't 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 let it slide into some other area where people are going to say, you know, this is a, it's being handled mm. by other people. Right. And the other people are engineers or the IT people or whomever they might be. Don't don't. That's a big mistake in, in that gap. That's the gap. And, the you know, there's gaps and seams that get exploited constantly. 
the gap between what policymakers are thinking about and what the, uh, they imagine is being handled by the IT people, whomever, in whatever organization, is a significant gap. And I'd say that's the thing that I've spent a good amount of my career trying to you know, bridge between these spaces and get people to really think in front of mind. Don't forget about cyber. Just because it's invisible, you depend on it. You depend on it daily in the same way that you depend on water, air, and all of the things that are around us. And so that's the first bit. And that is, uh, it's not easy for government to do that. It's, uh, it's not easy for defense institutions and others, but ultimately they're, they're the stewards of our security, and they're the ones who have responsibility for thinking about this. Now, I, I don't want to devolve it all the way down to the individual and say, uh, you know, you secure the weakest link, et cetera. I'm, I'm largely... Uh, though I recognize that humans are, right, we are the weak link yeah. in many of these systems, <laughs> uh, I don't want to blame us, right? We, the reality is that uh, we, we need to create better guardrails around people uh, through systems, whatever those look like, and ima- imagine better because that, that would be the last bit. So I think we should be able to imagine better. We're not quite there yet. I think we're still pure uncertainty and doubt-based doubt largely when it comes to cybersecurity. I think that one bit with AI that I'd like to just promote as, an, as, as a hopeful note here is that we have the opportunity yet again to think about what uh, a future would look like where AI is a, a, a helpful augmentation to all the things that we're doing with regard to cyber defense and cyber defense across organizations. So that's, that's what I'd say broadly. So two big pieces to it. Yeah. Uh, for, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1. We're broadcasting live from the 13th Annual Cybersecurity Summit here in Bloomington, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guests in this segment are Dr. Sean Costigan and Dr. Sylvain LeBlanc, and we're discussing cyber operations, cybersecurity, and related topics while we're here at the Cybersecurity Summit in Bloomington, Minnesota. I want to stay on the, on the NATO topic, if I could, very quickly. Uh, policy challenges and opportunities with regard to cyber. Uh, so... Both of you are well well aware that the U.S. intelligence community, U.S. federal law enforcement, DOD, even State Department's Global Engagement Center all play important roles in developing and implementing cyber-related policy in support of American national security interests. Uh, we have a national uh, cyber czar position. It was originally head, led by uh, Chris Inglis, uh, somebody with a long history at the uh, NSA. Uh, Harry Coker, a veteran from the National Security Agency, has been nominated to lead the nation's integrated cyber efforts, uh, but his confirmation has been held up. So for now, we have an acting national cyber director in, in Kemba Walden. How important is it for the United States to have a confirmed ni- national cyber director with all the authorities granted uh, for that position? And what do you think should be the next uh, c- national cyber director's most critical actions uh, once that individual takes office? And I, and I would pivot that to say there's a U.S. side of that. There's a Canada side to that. There's a NATO There's an international that, yeah. diplomatic side to it. Yeah. There's a variety of pieces that I think both of us can pick. Uh, I, I think, you know, one of the challenges of the uh, American system, the U.S. system broadly, is, uh, you know, it's a federated system. Uh, we're, we're based, uh, we have uh, cyber across so many different, so many different spectrum uh, here, and uh, the reality is that you know if you look at things like critical infrastructure, we've uh, you know haven't really touched on it here, but at the summit we are talking about it. Ninety percent of it in the United States is in private hands. Yeah, Eileen brought issue. that up at the start I, of Eileen the show. Brought that up. That's very good. Yeah. And I think building the trust uh, that that's that's where you need the cybers are uh, ultimately to be able to build trust, see across all the different spaces. Have uh, I'm not a big fan of cyber of czar in general as a, as, <laughs> as a phrase. You know, we had a you know a drug czar and other sorts of things. I think it's a, it's a strange language, but I get it. You know, I think we we need somebody who has oversight across and, and can create not not. Uh, 
a sense of urgency for sharing, I would say, at the end of the day, right, and, and trust. And that trust has to be extended to our partners and our allies as well. And that, that's the key bit that's missing, I think, in cyber, from my perspective, that, can, that the government can help bring. So. And, you know, from, your, from a, an outside of the uh, United States perspective, you know, in a confederation, uh, like Canada, you run into jurisdictional issues very, very quickly. Uh, whereas for us, a lot of the critical infrastructure is tied to natural resources, mm-hmm. natural resor- or tied to uh, education and professional credentialing, for example, as well. All of these things uh, and, our conf- and our constitutional system, they are all provincial responsibilities. Okay. So what the, what, at the federal level, what the government is able to do is the government is able to provide advice, the government is able to provide a coordination function, but it is it can't be directed. It very much needs to be it very much needs to be uh, encouraged and grown. Yeah. Uh, and you know, there's there's very little doubt that the the efforts in Canada are highly influenced by the efforts of what happens uh, here in our neighbors to the south. Uh, but they are it it's a growing issue where the the rapid pace of technological change. Uh, I think makes it difficult to to pin down policy solutions, uh, but we, we it's another area where I think we don't have a choice. We have to to continue trying to make headway, uh, but it's the solutions are not evident to a, a technocrat like me. I mean, do, do you see? So I'm going to ask both of you about NATO. Do you see these things, these kinds of things, happening in the NATO structure too, where there's a recognition where we have to be far more integrated on cyber policy and I'd say yeah. There's there's broad thought uh, there. You know, for my my so NATO has an emerging security challenges division. They have people who work in cybersecurity. There is uh, there definitely there's talent. There's also uh, awareness of uh, the need to work with corporations. And I mentioned that a couple of different times now because of the reality, the world that we live in. I think you can broadly argue, and I have that uh, sometime around the end of the Cold War, uh, the uh, there's a power shift that occurs where a technological power shift at minimum that leads to uh, companies being essentially in charge of the future of innovation, of uh, the development of the the infrastructures that we depend on on a daily basis. And that uh, government has taken a, a bit of a, an observer role mm. in a strange in a strange way that I think we might not have expected. You know, those who are you know thinking about the history of the 20th century, you can see a, that's that's a shift now. That in that space, the public private partnership side of it is very important, and so NATO is definitely aware of that. And you would see uh, uh, that increasing, I think, over time. So, and, and I'm going to bring it back to I think something is very important uh, that we see here at the Cybersecurity Summit is is the importance of people. Mm. Um, so the, whether you're working in the military, whether in the defense industry, in the defense, in national security and national defense, uh, or in industry, we see that a lot of the people that work on the policy side, on the technical side of cybersecurity, that they gain a, they gain a common understanding, they gain some, uh, skills and some experiences that are easily transferable. Uh, and I think that people at various stages in their lives and their careers are would be interested in the public service or in defense or in the private sector. But the, the efforts that we are putting into educating our people, uh, fully recognizing my bias as an academic, <laughs> uh, the efforts that we're putting into educating people are not lost because those skills are transferable uh, and they are applicable across the, the gamut uh, of national security in government, in armed forces, and in industry, I would argue. 
Yeah. I, I think part of, part of the things that I'm hearing from, from the two of you this morning, one is that uh, our policymakers, whether it be presidents or prime ministers or members of the, uh, you know, the, the national level legislatures, they need to be uh, cognizant of all these different aspects of cyber or cyber policy. It needs to be front of mind in everything that they are thinking about from a, from a law, passing laws and, and regulations perspective. Uh, the other thing is that it's become an integrated part of our societies as a whole. Eileen Manning was talking earlier about the fact that we are short some here in the United States, some 4 million people who could be employed in cybersecurity or cyber-related positions. So we just a, don't. That's a global number. Oh, it's a global, it's a global number? number. Okay. About 650,000 by the last uh, uh, national uh, assessment. In, in the U.S. In the US. Wow, yeah. that's he's yeah. still an enormous still a huge number. number. Uh, so maybe education, uh, you know, training kids in, in cyber, uh, in just computer languages, uh, things like that, computer programming by the time they can read. So starting in third grade, now it makes sense to maybe uh, put that in as part of our core curriculum all the way through. Lots of different things from a policy perspective uh, in the nation and, and amongst our allies and friends around the world that probably need to be thought about a little bit more aggressively. Uh, we just have a few minutes left, uh, Dr. Sylvain LeBlanc and, and Dr. Sean Costigan. As we close out the show today here live at the Cybersecurity Summit, uh, what thoughts would each of you like to leave with our listeners about the summit, about the state of play in the global cyber arena, security challenges, uh, whatever you'd like to share? And, and Sly, we'll start with you. I'd say that the, the, the thing to keep in mind is to try to remain engaged. Okay. Uh, people like me who are heavily versed on the technical side of the cyber environment, we have a tendency to talk about you know, sunspots and squiggly bits and <laughs> all of these things that lose the general audience. Uh, call us out on it. Just you know, bring us back to reality and remind us to make it real and to make it applicable so that everybody at all levels, that they be policymakers, that they be practitioners in the, in, in the domain, or that they be the general population, try to remain engaged uh, to, to make intelligent sense of what is happening would be my message. Yeah. I, I think, you know, and on, on the other side of it, the policy wonk side of it, I'd say, you know, remain engaged. You know, I'd take the same bit, but it, it, read, read, right, broadly, right? And with regard to, you don't have to go to Dr. Dobbs' journal or, you know, if that still exists and, you know, get into the ones and zeros end of it, but you ought to know, right? You ought to know enough about it to, to be able to have an informed conversation with a technologist. And you ought to be paying attention to what technologists are saying. And this is, again, to think about the AI moment that we've just seen with regard to Gen AI. It's a wake-up call. It's an opportunity at the same time for people to be able to take advantage of it and learn a bit about where various futures. And one thing we've, we talked about yesterday very briefly is uh, you know, the notion that we can have a variety of futures that we can envision and we can inform those futures. And this is a moment where policymakers should be able to take advantage of that. So I'd say remain engaged, talk to your technologist buddies, uh, learn a bit, right? and, uh, and teach them as well because that's the, that's the gap that needs to be bridged. If we can do that, uh, I think we'll become better uh, cyber defenders broadly. So we still have uh, the rest of the day today and, 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 and tomorrow here at the Cybersecurity Summit. Any, any speakers coming up that the two of you are really excited to hear from? The, the range of speakers uh, looking at the program, it, it's really quite impressive. 
than there is a, that there's such a, a breadth and depth of expertise. Um, so I think that we've got a, a few nice panels that are coming up uh, where I'm hoping to see a few sparks fly, uh, see a, a little bit of debate between participants <laughs> yeah. because I think that that's healthy. Uh, and for me, that is that that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I agree. I, I'd also just call out a friend of mine, uh, Jennifer Giroux, who's going to be speaking. Uh, and uh, she's uh, an, an, an anthropologist, a social scientist. She's going to be thinking about things a little differently. So one of the things that's really cool about the Cybersecurity Summit is that we have the opportunity not just to get deep on the ones and zeros, but to actually, uh, you know, work on the other side of the spectrum and bring people together in a way that uh, I think is uh, natural for Minnesota. So that's, uh, that's, that's where we are. All right. Thanks. Dr. Sean Costigan, Dr. Sylvain LeBlanc, thank you both for joining us uh, and for hosting us, frankly, uh, here at the 13th Annual Cybersecurity Summit today on National Security This Week. Uh, what, what do you guys have next right after the show? Thanks, Sean. Uh, a cup of coffee, I think. I think it's in order. Absolutely, Sean. All right. Thanks so much, John, for having us. Thanks, gentlemen. That closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. And have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington.